0: chapter 11. It's on page 7 of your bulletin. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zoboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that you would, by your grace, open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things, otherwise we could not. And would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how old I was. It might have been somewhere in junior high or senior high, somewhere in there. Um, when I, um, I wanted a pair of Oakley sunglasses, and some of you all might remember these, like the M-frame, the mumbo, like they wrapped around your eyes. And um, I think I, I, you know, I wanted them for several reasons, mainly, though, because my friends had them. Uh, but I also told my parents, because I played first base, that I couldn't actually play first base, but I didn't have these sunglasses. So they had to get them for me. Um, But the real reason was because my friends had them and if my friends had them at that age, right? There's just this sort of frustration and there's this it's just unfair like if they can have them I can't That's just unfair and that's sort of the life of that stage of life, right? you um, Come into things that seem like more real world problems, but really what it is. It's just fear and insecurity Because you just want to be like somebody else and and You know, my parents seemed to know something at that point that maybe I didn't. And they continued to say no. Um, And, of course, there was a new expression of wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, for me at that age. And, you know, my parents, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they were, I could fill in a few blanks there, of course, at that point in time. But um, to come full circle, though, just for the sake of finishing this story, then I think about it. They did at one point let me have them. So I can't believe it. Two weeks after that, I left them on the back of a truck, and they—they they, the guy drove off, and I totally forgot about and lost them. Right? Maybe that's what they were thinking when they said no. I don't. Know, maybe. I could, maybe I'm not sure. But as parents, right, we all go through this, and we all sort of have. It's not just sort of like knowledge of our children and whether or not they'll be able to be responsible for things. And I think it's actually great to let our kids, you know, learn what responsibility is the hard way sometimes. But as a parent, you see inside that child that your your real desire for wanting this is the fear and insecurity you have because your friends have it and you don't. And so you see that and you know that one day they're going to grow out of that and they're going to realize this is foolish. Kind of like me as a parent today, I'm doing the same thing now to my kids. Maybe you're doing the same to yours or or you've seen this happen and you just, there's, there's a better day coming, Right. And but in the midst of that, right, what is your parent? What is the parent saying? You've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. I right, just trust me. And of course, we don't. We won't. Um, and we'll think that they don't know what they're doing. But as a parent to that child, you're saying there are better days ahead. I know you want this and I know the reasons why you want this. But I know that something more wonderful is in store for you than sunglasses Or whatever your heart is set on at this point. That day is coming. Um, But in that moment, right, you can't see it. You can't see it. That's a picture of our text this morning. As we've been following along in Hosea, God comes to his people as a parent to a child in, in chapter 11. They want something other than what he promises, which is himself. And what he asks them to to, to live on in the moment is, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me. And it's hard and Israel fails at it. But God asks his people to trust him because he loves them and he knows, just like a parent to a child, that something better, something more wonderful awaits them, though they cannot see it. And the same is true for us this morning. And this is kind of the last turn for Hosea as we... Uh, prepared to leave the book in the next couple of weeks. And I want us to see this, though, that God, God, God's promise to his people and to, 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 to ask them to trust him, even in difficult moments. I want us to see that through these three points as we look through this wonderful, wonderful text. The problem in the passage, the power in the passage, and the hope in the passage. So let's look at the first one, the the problem in the passage. The problem in this passage, and it's not a new thing, is that God loves the people that don't love him back. We've traveled with that theme since the beginning. God loves the people and they don't love him back. And so um, we hear about this. And up to this point, the driving metaphor in Hosea, as you remember, has been the faithful spouse to an unfaithful spouse. And right now, this is going to change to a faithful parent. To a child who no longer desires to be in the company of that parent, who no longer desires the companionship, in spite of what the father has done. If you look at verse one, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse three: Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, taught him to walk. I took him by the arms. Right, you can picture the father sort of in the first steps of that child's, uh, the first steps that child takes. All of this, all of this upbringing, and they did not know that I healed them. And what God is doing is he's calling them back to the beginning of their relationship, which was in Egypt. Where he called them out as his people um, and freed them from the Egyptians. And this act of redemption on God's behalf, would it marked the definitive moment that Israel was always to remember? Because in this act, right, the, 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 the exodus of Egypt, from Egypt, from slavery, it was the father rescuing his son matter of fact, if you go back and look at it in chapter four of Exodus, I think Moses goes to Pharaoh and that's what he calls Israel. God says, let my let my people go. But he said, this is my son. Let him go. And they were to remember this. And this was the rescuing of the son, reuniting him with the father, with the promise that they would live together forever in a land flowing of milk and honey that he would give them. And it seemed like everything would be fine (laughs) until the next day, right on the shores of the Red Sea, Israel begins to complain. And they were not happy, in fact, that they wanted to go back to Egypt instead of trusting themselves to the tender hands of a loving father who has literally just rescued them from slavery. They would rather go back into the hands that abused them. At least in e- Egypt, they would say, we had three meals a day, right? You have brought us out here into the wilderness to die. These were their complaints in chapters 15, 16, and 17 of Exodus. Just to draw our attention there for just a second. But this, this would not change there. This would not change as as, as God's child, even after they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years to, to, to wait for a generation to die off before they were entered, entered the promised land with Joshua. Even there, it wouldn't change even until they were given a king such as David. And even up to now, where Hosea preaches to an apostate Israel. The more they were called, the more they went away, Hosea says in verse two. That's the story. Even though I led them with cords of kindness, likely meaning God's prophets to lead his people, beginning with Moses. The bands of love, all of this, they never acknowledged me. Right. But what is, what is this? Right. As we keep going through this metaphor, right? This is, this is, in many ways, raising a child, perhaps maybe even a teenager for some of us. And one who thinks that, what, they know everything. And we all go through this at certain times in our lives, that, that we know everything. Uh, who thinks that their parents know nothing. And then that life actually begins as soon as I get out of this house. See, if you have teenagers, right, God can sympathize with you in every way. Or if you've had them. Because, and what I'm told, raising teenagers, but oftentimes children at times, let me be careful about that, right, is much like loving people who don't love you back. It's kind of what it feels like sometimes to be a parent. But this is how chapter 11 starts out. It's every parent's worst nightmare to raise kids, to pour your life into them, only to see them grow up and want nothing to do with you, but worst, to not love God at all. And this is the problem in the passage. God loves a people who do not love him back. And if you've been with us in the study uh, with Hosea, you know that we have been saying that we are the ones that we we should relate to Israel. Israel is a reflection, is a mirror of our own hearts. And while it will be God and God alone who loves us back to himself, the Bible is always teaching us something about God and who he is by what? By showing us who we really are. And who we really are is we still have, if I could continue with that metaphor, that sort of that teenager in us that just wants to do what he or she wants to do. Full of insecurity, full of fear, unsettled. And that is exactly where Israel is. And like any rebellious teenager, our behavior, right, will always reap what it sows. When we pursue things in life out of insecurity and fear, right, that reaps, as we saw last week, a whirlwind. That's what's happening, though, in verses 5 to 7, to finish out this section, because Israel wants nothing to do with God. They They will get Assyria. They will get Egypt, right? Crime will come to their cities, to their gates, as the text says. They will cry out to the god Baal, but he'll do nothing. He won't answer them. After all, it's been me, God is sort of saying to them, that's done everything for them. He won't do anything for them because he's not real. And all of this, because they are hell-bent, is the literal translation on turning away from God. Verse 7, that's the picture. What Scripture is showing us is that that that's in all of us. It's in all of our hearts. God has loved us. He has been gracious and kind. He has been faithful, yet... Our teenage heart wants to go the other way. And that's just another way of talking about sin. Sin is, to quote the New City Catechism, um, question 16, it's rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created. Not being or doing what he he requires of of his law as well. And all this results, the consequences results in our death. And it says the disintegration of all creation. Rejecting and ignoring God. That's in all of us at times in our lives. Because why? Well, we just want to do what we want to do. That was a good part of my week. just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And in this way, God's love for me is not reciprocated in the way that he demands The message in Hosea and throughout all of scripture is that if God doesn't do something to get me, as it were. I will be like one, as verse two says, the more he called, the more I ran away. This is the problem in the passage. God loves a people that don't love him back. And it's here that the Bible wants to show us this about ourselves, not to leave us there. But so that it can actually teach us something about God himself about his grace, which has the power to win us over, which has the power to change our hearts. And this is what we turn to you next, our our second point. What we learn through Israel and Hosea about God is that his love for us doesn't depend, thankfully, on our love for him. Let me say that again. What we learn from this text as we move into this second point is that God's love and his purposes even, they do not depend on our love for him. And thankfully so. And this is the power in the passage. Leaving verses 1 to 7, and I love this about Hosea, we get a glimpse into the mind of God as a parent in verse 8, where we are brought into the heart struggle here that God as a father is wrestling with. And you heard it as it was read. I re- look at it again, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? You see the struggle here, right? And then he, then he just makes this definitive uh, claim. My heart recoils within me. My passion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. God's heart is pulled into here between the mercy he longs to show his people, right, and the judgment their sin, their unfaithfulness deserves, First, what is Adma and Zeboim? These are cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19, if we recall. And that story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that unique moment in in the story of the Bible in Genesis where God gives us a glimpse of his wrath to an unfaithful people. He totally destroys those cities. And the picture there is kind of like he should kind of keep going, but he doesn't. Because what the story also tells us is that God will have mercy if faithfulness can be found. That's what he tells Abraham. And so the picture here in Hosea as he draws from Genesis at this point is that Israel, the northern kingdom, whom Hosea was a prophet to, is ripe for judgment in the way that Sodom and Gomorrah was. But God refuses to do it all of a sudden. He won't, in effect, give them what they deserve. He says, my heart recoils, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Reminder, this is still the God of the Old Testament. As we've been seeing in this book, our sin breaks the heart of God. Whether it's an unfaithful spouse, whether it's a parent to a child. But it doesn't stop him from loving us as he promised. And that is the real power of this text. God's love does not depend on our love for him. But second, how is God able even to love like this in the first place? Right, the human response here is, is obvious. If I am hurt by someone over and over and over again, right, I'm either, I'm either going to move to hurt you back or I'm going to move into a place of resentment. That's, that's my heart. That's where I go. But that's not where God goes. And why? Because one, he's not like us. Look at verse 9. Look what, look what Hosea says. I will not execute my burning in anger, for I am God and not a man, or I'm not human. In other words, God's love and anger are different than ours. His love and his anger are actually deeper and fuller than ours. Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, usually in scripture, his holiness describes the contrast between our sin and God's purity. But here, it describes the contrast between our resentments and God's grace. In other words, when someone wrongs me, my natural instinct is to dig in with resentment and bitterness. That's human. What Hosea is saying is that God's not like us in this way. Where we would hold resentment, God, what? He actually shows grace. He shows grace. God does not respond to human sin in the way that humans do. Chester, or Chester continues, and he quotes John Newton. And I thought this was so good I had to share it with you. John Newton says, if we had offended men or angels as we have offended our creator and redeemer and they had permission and power to punish us, our case would be utterly desperate. Only he who made us is able to bear with us. And anybody who's been a parent understands that. They understand that about their own children, right? A good parent will tell you their love for their children is not dependent upon them loving them back. How much more for God himself who created us. God does not like us. His love and anger are fuller. They're deeper. His love is not dependent upon our love for him. Thankfully so. But the second reason God is able to actually love like this in Hosea, uh, as, as he says in Hosea, Given all that Israel has done is because of Jesus. God won't execute his burning anger or wrath towards Israel because he's all because he already knows he will put it on himself. He already knows he will put it on his own son. Jesus will become Adma and Zebohim here, where Israel will not sow that. Right. We who what ran away, the more he called us will finally come home. That's the picture here all of a sudden. The cross then is already in God's plan here in Hosea. And it's what allows his compassion to grow for Israel. It's what what allows his compassion to even grow for us when we disobey him now. But it's what allows his compassion to grow for Israel in this moment and why he will not execute his burning anger on them. Jesus will receive that instead. When God's people scorn him, when they forget him, when they are unfaithful to him, right? When that sort of, as we've been saying, that teenager comes out and they are unfaithful to him in any way. He doesn't fill with resentment, right? He fills with grace. And why? Only because of Jesus. It's not because you get your act together that you begin to start loving your child over again, is it? It's so hard to believe that God does the same with us. I can enter into that this morning. It's only because of Jesus, right? This is why then that the cross is the ultimate sign for us that God's love for us does not depend on our love for him. That's why it's there. That's why he had to die. That's why the cross also doesn't make sense to us. That's why the cross even angers us because it's grace. It's not human in that way. We don't respond like this. It's grace. And this is why Hosea says God is not like us. He is not human in this way. Which is why God's love is different. Which is why God's love is so powerful. It's why his love is power, actually, as Romans will, will tell us, to change us, right? He will love us back to himself and he'll do it through Jesus. This is the power in the passage, right? And thankfully, his love does not depend on our love for him. But we don't just get to the cross and stop there. And that's what I love about this text, right? We've gotten there this soon. And I wanted to do that early to get there as soon as we can, because there's a, there's a message in Hosea that is still continuing today. And this is what gets to the final point here, the hope in the passage that God will in fact call his people and they will hear his voice. That the power of the cross, as we've just got done saying, it is the hope that one day God will get us all back home. For those, of course, who believe in him, this is how he's going to do it. And this is what verses 10 and 11 point to. And it's wonderful. We started chapter 11 in verse 1 with the initiating love of God calling his son out of Egypt. Here, verses 10 to 11, we are ending with the initiating love of God that because of the cross, because of the plan that he has already put in motion to call his people to himself, wherever they are, right, this is going to happen. And it's going to happen on his watch. It's going to happen because of him. This plan is likened then, you see, to a lion's roar in verse 10. They, meaning Israel or God's people, will go after the Lord, the text says. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Cue the Chronicles of Narnia. We're all hearing it. We're all eating it up. He's going to roar, and when he roars, his people will come home. And there's a sense here that this is the definitive act, and the pinnacle of this act is absolutely Jesus and his death and his resurrection. But the finality of that roar is his return. It's his return. What Hosea is talking about here is this word that Scripture uses all the time, and that's a remnant. The word is a remnant that God will preserve a people, a remnant from which his promises will come true. While the northern kingdom will fall and many will get carried away to Assyria and taken down to Egypt, God will call them all back one day, as verse 11 says. That those who even have been scattered into foreign lands, right? This plan that he has set in motion that is marked by the roar of this lion will bring them home to God. That's the promise here. And that remnant, as we know, will be preserved in Judah to the south. So Let's get historical here in our book for a second. The southern kingdom will, will, will be the place where God looks to, to preserve that remnant, which will hold the promise for him. And he'll keep that remnant together even as the southern kingdom falls as well and gets exiled to Babylon. And he'll continue to be good to his people through Jeremiah as he tells them to, 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 to live in the city, right? To, to plant, farms, marry, right? I'm still with you. And he'll continue that, that thread, that remnant, all the way back as they bring them back into Jerusalem where they think that maybe this is the place where those promises will be fulfilled. And he'll continue the promise of that remnant for 400 years of silence until what? Till we get to the beginning pages of Matthew. And we get to that first page with all these names. What's the the, the deal with those names? That's the remnant. That's the pathway. And we'll get to this place where we'll see that as Revelation 5 calls, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has arrived. And he will secure his people's way to God. That's Jesus. It's a beautiful story. You can't make this up. Therefore, the cross is both the pinnacle of that roar, as I said here in verse 10, but it's a roar that will continue until Jesus returns. God is still calling his people all over the world from every generation. And when he calls them, they will hear his voice. That's the hope. That's our hope. We witness it here. And when they hear his voice, they will return and nothing will take them from his hand. This is why Jesus comes to us in John chapter 10 and says, I am what the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's echoing Hosea's promise here. He is the son that we read about in Matthew. Out of Egypt, God says, I called my son. Where Hosea comes alive for us this morning, though, is God is still roaring. It's not done. And he's doing it through his church to call sinners to himself, to give eternal life to those who believe and trust in him. Even to prideful, know-it-all people who just want, right? You just think their parents are morons because they won't give them sunglasses. The people who don't know how to love him. Even still, he loves us. He loves us back to himself through Jesus. And that roar still goes on today. And so this leaves us really kind of just with one point of application that, that I want us to take home as hope for us as for church. But also, like, guys, we're part of the greatest story in the world, right? We, we have the best message of hope than any other place in this world. And this first place of application and really the last place that I'm going to leave you is that right, this means that God is at work no matter What is going on around you? Let me say that again. God is at work, no matter what is going on around you, no matter what you're experiencing today. And I think that's something that all of us need to hear here in 2020. 2020 has not stopped the roar of God's plans and purposes coming about through his son Jesus, as Hosea is already talking about and declaring can we put our hope in other things? Yes, we do it all the time. But let me remind you and call you back from those things because you guess what? Those things do not have a roar. Look, look for Israel, they were after what? The security of two other nations. Flying back, as we saw last week, as a dove. Silly, without sense. right? It's that child, the insecure, fearful child, wanting to be on the right side of history, wanting the security that perhaps maybe these two nations can give them are they even like where's assyria today i mean it's it's physically there, but like the Assyrian army's not here, those are doves, pigeons, there's no roar there. They would rather put their trust in them than than what God is offering them as his people. The eternal life that he would give them to live with him in a land flowing of milk and honey. That's a roar. What Israel wants and what they hope in is, as my wife puts it, small potatoes. Potatoes. Compared to what God offers and is doing. Through his word, through his church. All right. Well, hey. Hey. We do the same thing, which is why I want to call us back from these smaller narratives, these things we go to in our own fears because of our own fears, our own insecurities, looking for security, looking for hope. They have no roar. And we could fill that list with a million things, right, in our own country, in our own context, right? And these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. We talk about them a lot. There's our money that we run to. There's our comfort that we run to. There's power that we run to. There's no roar there. We could even go so far, dare I say, an election. I have talked to and seen folks who believe at the same time that the world is physically coming to an end and that racism is finally over. And I want to say, no, it's not. And no, it's not. I hope it would be, but it's not. Because elections don't have roars. They're important. We need to participate in them. And they have consequences. But it doesn't have a roar. You know what does? does. The promise of resurrected bodies when Jesus returns because he too was resurrected, because of your union with him, that has a roar. That is the place where our hope should be found. That is what God is calling us back to here in Hosea. As one commentary puts as well, and he's, you know, he's doing this through his church. And, and one commentary puts it this way, wherever we proclaim the gospel, right, the lion roars, which means and implies mission and purpose today. So not only do we have a greater hope and a message for this world, right? but even in our individual lives, as we go live out the gospel and proclaim Jesus, right, that is where that roar is taking place as well. God will call his people and they will hear his voice. And he will call the people and nothing will be able to take them out of his hands. Assyria can't do that for Israel. Babylon can't do that for Israel. Nothing can but God himself And this is the promise that he makes to you this day. And he does this, let me say it over and over, because he loves you. We have to trust a good father in this moment. Whatever that is for you. And where this is hard for us, right? Like a kid who wants Oakley sunglasses, Where we are not, you know, promised to see the fruition here, the fruits of our labors, even, the promises come true, like where that's hard for us. This is where God's people can be so helpful. I'm reminded of, of 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 Hebrews talking about such a, a great cloud of witnesses. You know who also didn't get to see God's promises come to fruition? Hosea. All right? Talk about a guy who really had, you know. I don't know what metaphor you want to use, but he goes and proclaims a message. And we don't know what happened to him, but many believe that he was, as we've said before, I believe, like he either died as Assyria came in because of Israel's unfaithfulness, or he was taken off as a slave and died in another land. <laughs> right? So here you are, right, proclaiming God's message. You're one of these good cords, and you're telling these people to repent, and they don't, and you, get, you suffer the consequences. Like, it's hard not seeing God at work. Sometimes, but let me leave this for you as we think about Hosea. His hope wasn't in seeing those plans come to fruition in his lifetime. As I would say, all Christians aren't His hope, right, was in a promise that God made. His hope is in Jesus. His hope is in Jesus. That's where his trust was. That's where the roar he hoped in was placed how much for us we have so much more of the story than hosea had than, than than any of those believers that that came down through the ages right this great cloud of witnesses we have so much more of this story our hope is in that roar as well and the gospel of hosea invites us to do the same it invites us right To come into and enter into things that you cannot see, but you're being told, hey, this is what's for your best. (laughs) To trust a father, a loving father, that he knows that good and wonderful things await you. Because that's right where God wants us. And that's the hard part. (laughs) It's right where he wants us as a parent to a child, trusting that something Wonderful awaits because he loves you. Right? And that is our job as a church today as we continue to proclaim this roar. He has things for us that no eye has seen, no eye can imagine. And the cross, right, is that daily reminder of us that thankfully his love for us does not depend upon our love for him. But it says, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. This is how I will get you home. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We don't deserve them. We are even having a hard time uh, perhaps even trusting them right now. But they're still true. The lion has roared and it will continue until Jesus returns that's where my hope is today. That's where my faith is in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would continue to use your church as we've seen throughout the service to proclaim that message of hope as well. That you would equip us to be people to go out to proclaim the message of Jesus. Who is the sealer of our own salvation. And that because of him, we one day will return home to you where all of our hearts are longing to return to get back to you. And what a day of celebration that will be. We ask this for your glory alone, and we pray that you would come quickly. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.